It's time for Success Profiles Radio with your host, Brian K. Wright. Have you ever wondered if there's more to life than you're currently living? Then Success Profiles Radio is the program for you. Every week, we'll explore different aspects of success and how to apply them to your life. Guests will come from many different backgrounds, including expertise in leadership, business, relationships, careers, networking, health, overcoming adversity, and much more. Every show is a dose of inspiration. This is Success Profiles Radio. And now, here's your host, Brian K. Wright. Hello and welcome to Success Profiles Radio. I'm your host, Brian K. Wright, and it's an absolute pleasure to be with you here today. I'm honored that you chose to spend part of your day with me here, and this is going to be a fantastic and amazing show. I cannot wait. I'll be introducing my guest in a moment or two, and this is going to be a lot of fun. I do want to take a minute or two to share some things I've been learning and thinking about lately, and I usually do this every week. And before I forget, this episode is brought to you by Phone Sites. With Phone Sites, you can build a website or sales funnel from your mobile device in five minutes or less without any technical skills or without downloading an app. Try it free for 14 days at phonesites.com forward slash Brian. Once again, that's phonesites.com forward slash B-R-I-A-N. One time, I did a Facebook Live about beating procrastination, which was inspired by a book called The Five-Second Rule by Mel Robbins. We tend to put things off. It's our human nature, and it's because we try to avoid the feelings associated with procrastination. We might be afraid of failing, for example. She outlined a three-step process for beating procrastination. Step one is forgive yourself. Forgive yourself for putting things off. Forgive yourself for allowing yourself to get into your current situation. Step two is visualize the future version of yourself and ask what that version of you would do in your current situation. And step three is just do it. So anything you truly want is within your grasp. The only way to get it is to get started. You will be so glad you did. I want to introduce my guest. He is Stephen Sashin. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Stephen is the co-founder and CEO of Zero Shoes. Stephen and his wife started the company after discovering the comfort, benefits, and fun of natural movement by getting out of thick, padded, motion-controlled shoes. He's one of the fastest masters All-American sprinters in the country. That's for runners in their 50s and higher. In 2013, he and his wife went on Shark Tank, and they turned out an investment, and Zero Shoes was born. The company has been on the Inc. 5000 list five years in a row and has grown by 316% over the three-year period ranging from 2017 to 2020. Zero Shoes is the official footwear sponsor of the U.S. Olympic Artistic Swimming Team and the U.S. Olympic Archer Team. We have a lot to unravel today, and I cannot wait to get started. Here we are with my very special guest, Stephen Sashin. Stephen, how are you today? I am good. I'm going to try and live up to my intro. Well, there it is. So here's my (laughs) first question, Stephen. Did you envision early on that you would be where you are right now today? Oh, oh my God. Uh, I can't think of anything further from the, from that. Um, if you would ask me at any point in history, if we would be where we are now, I would have told you, you were completely ridiculous. Hmm. So you have a film degree from Columbia university. I would love to hear how you got into that. And then (laughs) how did you pivot to what you're doing now? Well, um, as a guy who's 59 and a half, it wasn't so much of a, as a pivot as just my life evolving. So in 19, when was this? A um, long time ago. Uh, I was actually doing stand-up comedy for a living, living in Manhattan, and had a lot of time on my hands. And I was trying to think of what else I wanted to do, what things were I was I good at that were interesting. And a friend of mine was applying to Columbia University Film, University Film School. Try saying that five times fast. Mm-hmm. And it just sounded like the right 
fit. Um, I was writing, I was performing. I hadn't done any producing or directing, but that was part of the project as well. But I applied and for some strange reason, they let me in and I ended up getting a master's in film specializing in screenwriting. I ended up inventing what became the industry standard word processing software for film and television writers. Um, and that was all, oh my, oh my. Um, I guess I got out of film school in 1990, which seems like forever ago because it right. was. Yeah. And then I just had a lot of lives between then and now, including uh, doing some real estate investing, doing day trading, teaching Internet marketing, teaching meditation, uh, and then being happily retired from 2000 to 2009 before my wife, Lena, and I started Zero Shoes. That is interesting. In doing my research, I discovered that you love archery because your company sponsors the <laughs> archer team. What is Zen archery? That just doesn't oh. even compute for me. <laughs> yeah, well, for many people. And oh, yeah, I forgot. Somewhere in the middle of there, I uh, also hosted an internationally syndicated television show that somehow is related to all this. So Zen archery, a.k.a. Kudo, the way it's talked about here in America is moving meditation or it's meditation in action. And the idea is that if you're sitting, if you're doing Zen practice, you're sitting on a cushion and you're trying to do your koan or watch your breathing, whatever your practice happens to be. And with Kudo, you're actually shooting this seven foot long Japanese longbow. And the goal is not so much to hit the target as to deal with all the things that arise while you're trying to perfect this crazy thing that's half in and half out of control. You're not like gripping the bow really hard. The thing that holds the string is a tiny little notch in a glove that you wear that isn't even really a notch. I mean, it's just barely holds the string. And the bow is typically right at the edge of your strength level. So what's fascinating is that during the course of this practice where you're trying to do it perfectly and it's not possible to do it perfectly, where things are right on the edge of control versus out of control, where you're aiming at a target that you don't care if you hit and many other paradoxes, you yeah. basically end up getting, I don't know, like four different thoughts. You get striving, you get fear, you get anger, you get hope. Um, and after a while of just having those roll over and over in your mind as you're trying to do this practice – you pretty much just bore the crap out of yourself. Mm. <laughs> and so when those thoughts arise, they just don't have anywhere to land. And that's the meditation part of it. That's the moving meditation part is that you just um, do this thing where you're just doing this very interesting, very fun practice um, without having much concern other than what's happening in the moment. And the biggest thing that usually happens in a moment is thinking and you just stop really caring about what happens wow. with your brain. That's that's interesting. Now, of course, you you're one of the fastest sprinters in in your age group slash our age group in the country. <laughs> yeah. uh, how did you get interested in running? Have you been doing this all your life? Yeah, I was one of the I was that kid who was the fastest kid in school until uh, in, I guess, maybe ninth grade when everyone else started growing and I didn't. Mm. And in 10th grade, um, 10th or 11th, I guess. The track coach at, high, at our high school didn't really know how to deal with sprinters and everyone else got to be six feet tall and I was still a whopping five, five, maybe, I don't know, I'm not even sure I'd hit five, five at that point. So I was, I moved over to, to, um, long jump and pole vault. I was also an all American gymnast back then. And wow. then after high school, I stopped sprinting. And it wasn't until I was 45, a friend of mine came into brunch and he had made a comment about how he had just won his first 5K race. And I said, yeah, I always love the idea of running, but I'm not a runner. I'm a sprinter. And he mm -hmm. says, well, you know, there's master's track and field. They do all the track and field events for older athletes. And I said, what? Uh, I did mm -hmm. not know about this. And it just seemed like the most fun thing I could think of to do. And 
uh, once I got back into it. It was fun in those few moments between the injuries that I was getting pretty much constantly for the first couple of years. Wow. So what lessons did you learn from running that translate to business today? Oh, wow. Um, well, of course, the biggest lesson I learned was how to get out of the shoes that I was wearing that were the cause of my injuries and into wearing either nothing or what the footwear that humans have been wearing for the 9,950 years prior to the advent of the, quote, modern athletic shoe. Mm. Um, that's what created the business. But I think in terms of um, lessons from running I, you know, it's going to sound really funny. It's another sort of Zen archery thing. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite things that I do at the beginning of a race is I look down the track and it's not very far. It's a hundred meters, but it seems a far and b uphill, which uh, is clearly perceptual, but nonetheless, it's a little daunting. And I do this very wacky thing in my mind where I realize that the experience of seeing three dimensions and distance is an artifact that's created in your brain. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we have two eyes that are separated by however far apart they're separated and the way our brain works, we experience it as something out there with some amount of distance. But if you kind of pay attention, this is going to sound really weird. If you pay attention to just the experience, um, that kind of in the moment thing, then everything kind of flattens out. You realize that what you're seeing is kind of a projection of your brain. And then the distance kind of goes away and that feeling of it going uphill goes away and everything just seems really simple and quiet. Mm -hmm. And um, even more so in the moment between when they're saying, you know, on your mark, get set, and then the gun goes off. Between set and the gun going off is the quietest moment in my life. Mm -hmm. And I just love that moment because it's nothing but anticipation. Mm. So, um, and then the gun goes off and you just don't, you don't have time to think. You just do the thing you take mm. off. So wow. the, the answer for business, <laughs> um, is that I'm not nearly as elegant at dealing with those transitions as I am when I'm sprinting, but it's the, the memory of that, the feeling of that is what comes back to me. So just for the fun of it, just before this call, um, we had someone come and give us some very unpleasant news, uh, mm. about their employment, AKA someone's leaving us oh, and wow. someone that's a really important employee. And so, um, what I find myself doing is something akin to that kind of two dimensionality thing where <laughs> I realize that my upset is the, and this actually goes to what you mentioned about procrastination in a way. My upset is that I'm more, I'm worried about the imagined future where I'm imagining the difficulty that we will have finding someone to replace this person. Hmm. I'm not upset that this person's leaving per se, but at what's going to happen as a result. And when I realize that my upset is because of my dashed expectations, if you will, um, then everything flattens out a little bit and it doesn't quite affect me the same way. And it leads me to figuring out what next actions I'm ready and willing and able to take to just take the next step. That's amazing. We've got less than two minutes to our next break. So our first break, I want to ask when things get tough for you, what causes you to not give up? Um, that's a weird question for me because I've never had the thought of giving up. So I don't know how to answer that. Oh, Okay. So you, you keep going and that's just something that is imbrained, imprinted into your brain then. Well, we're on a mission. We're trying to help people rediscover that, 
uh, natural movement is the obvious better healthy choice the way natural food is. And we have 40,000 plus people who have left five-star reviews saying things like, you changed my life. And so um, I, I literally can't think of anything. I can't think of a reason that I would have the thought of giving up. This is hugely important and is much bigger than me or my wife or our entire company even. Fantastic. We are coming up against our break. My very special guest this week is Stephen Sashin, and we are going to talk about his company, Zero Shoes, how he got that started, and a lot of different things relating to starting and scaling a business. And we will talk about his appearance on Shark Tank. Mm. That was fun. I saw that clip, and I have questions. So (laughs) it's going to be a lot of fun. Shark Tank is my favorite television show, so I am obligated to bring this up. And we're going to talk about so much when we come back from the break. This is Success Profiles Radio. Please stay with us. Don't go away. We will return shortly. The mission is to motivate and inspire others to discover their unique talents and follow their dreams in life. This is Success Profiles Radio. It's Merging In celebration of what would have been author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Roald Dahl's 100th birthday, Oxford University Press has published the Oxford Roald Dahl Dictionary. The dictionary is both authoritative and a little bit mischievous and includes everyday words plus those invented by Dahl for his books. One of my favorite words from the dictionary is Zazimus. That is what the big friendly giant calls the stuff that dreams are made of, which he whisks with his magical egg beater. Roald Dahl loves the letter Z, which he uses in his mystical words like fizz whizzing, zip fizzing, and zunk. By now, you might be feeling a bit biff-squiggled. That's another word for confused or puzzled. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Surveys show that 81% of people wish they could, but many never do. If you're one of those people, I can tell you why. You don't think you have time, you may not know how, or you might not believe you are a good enough writer. When you're working with an experienced coach, these reasons go away because I will help you every step of the way. If you want to know more about how to write a nonfiction book, whether it's business, self-help, or how-to, reach out to me at www.briankwright.com for more information. Once again, that's briankwright.com. Welcome back to Success Profiles Radio. So many people live their lives wanting more than they currently have. And this show will clearly demonstrate the principles, if I can do it, you can do it. So let's get back to the show. This is Success Profiles Radio. And here again is your host, Brian K. Wright. And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest this week is Stephen Sashin. He's the founder of Zero Shoes. And if you have not downloaded and subscribed to Success Profiles Radio on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, please do that. And even leave a review if you think it's worth it. I sure hope you do. I can't wait to, to hear your feedback. So, Stephen, let me ask you, why do you think some people achieve success and others don't? 
Um, I like to say that success is 90% luck and the other 10% is uh, also luck. And then there's a whole other 100% where 90% of that is working your butt off and the other 10% mm-hmm. is hopefully being smart enough to know how to put out the fires that started overnight despite the fact that nothing changed since yesterday. Right. So um, I don't know is the best answer I can give. In fact, I don't. it's not even something I ever concern myself with is yeah. trying to reverse engineered or figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's just sort of, you know, take a step, figure out what the world looks like, take the next step, lather, rinse and repeat. There you go. So let's come right down to it. How did Zero Shoe start and what was your reason for starting it? Well, after I got back into sprinting and was getting injured pretty much constantly for a couple of years, a friend of mine who's a world champion runner said, why don't you try running barefoot? Get out of those big, thick, padded, motion controlled, art supporting shoes that everybody wears and see if you learn anything from just going back to what humans did for tens of thousands of years. And what I learned in short was why I was getting injured because it was a form problem that was very obvious when barefoot and very not obvious when wearing shoes. And even more, because it was so obvious, basically doing it wrong hurts and uh, doing it right feels good. There was this this natural transition to changing my form. So my injuries went away. I became faster. Uh, as like you mentioned, I was became an all-American gym, uh, sorry, all-American master sprinter. And I wanted that barefoot, like that natural movement experience, but I wanted to be able to get into a restaurant without having to argue about whether it's legal or not to be barefoot in a restaurant. And right. I wanted a little protection from things that I was stepping on or possibly in. So I made a pair of sandals based with some rubber that I got from a shoe repair place and some cord from Home Depot based on a 10,000 year old design idea. And, um, I made another pair for my wife and then a few other runners and they told two friends and they told two friends. And after a little while, uh, this one running coach, a guy named Michael Sandler said, I have a book coming out called barefoot running. And if you treated this sandal making hobby, like a business, I could put you in a book. Uh, like if you had a website or something, well, I've been an internet marketer since 1992. So I built hundreds of websites at that point. And I rush mm-hmm. home and I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife who assures me that it's a really stupid idea, that it's a waste of time and won't make any money. And it's a distraction from other things that we were doing. And I said, yeah, that's probably true. I, I won't do it. And after my wife went to bed, I built a website. <laughs> and, <laughs> of course. Um, you know, I'm a husband. So, and it really, it just took off. I mean, the first sale we made was practically in the middle of winter to somebody in Minnesota. And that gave us a hint that maybe we were onto something. Now, keep in mind, this was selling a do-it-yourself sandal making kit. So we had this little, I mean, it was a little business run literally off the floor in a corner of a spare bedroom. Lena and I had a debate about whether we were going to have to buy a folding table to take things off the floor. And then another conversation about whether we needed two folding tables. And then it just kept going from there. So how did you pivot from do it yourself to having it already done for you and buying it just like you might buy other shoes? Well, the biggest part of the pivot was people asking us for that, saying, hey, I love this idea of making my own sandals. And even though it's really easy and fun, I like to say you develop the superpower of knowing how to make your own footwear. Um, They were saying, I'm never going to do it. And it was actually a real challenge to come up with something that gave the same benefits, because the sandal that you make, it's not like a flip-flop, which is actually bad for your feet and um, doesn't let you move naturally, but to come up with, a, with something that was as elegant and functional, but still had the ease of getting in and out, the adjustability, et cetera, we had to develop new hardware. In fact, I have a patent on the system that we ended up landing on uh, that allows you to have something very similar to what was made 10,000 years ago. Uh, but it was a combination of just 
boy, spending a lot of nights sitting in the hot tub that we had at the house that we were renting, imagining different ways of tying knots and lacing shoes and wrapping cord around your feet and developing uh, hardware that had never been developed before. And we were really, really lucky. Back to my 90% uh, luck thing. We ended up, I met a guy socially. In fact, the way I met him, he was walking his dog and the, uh, another friend of ours was walking his dog. The dogs knew each other. The two guys started talking. And this guy who my friend met, he was the former head of global product design at Crocs. Mm. And our friend said, Ooh, my friend, Stephen Lane, have a shoe company, which I would say was not really true. We had a do it yourself sandal making kit company. We sold, you know, sheets of rubber string and instructions. Anyway, um, this guy, his name is Dennis. Dennis gave our friend his phone number. I sat on it for months thinking, why would he want to have anything to do with me? And then I eventually called him and we got together for lunch. And at the end of what was supposed to be an hour and turned into four, I said, I'd love to work with someone like you someday, but probably much younger and just getting their feet wet. And Dennis said, what about me? I said, I don't think I can afford you. He goes, I just retired. I went, hey, you're hired. And so uh, this became a a, a project of Dennis's as well. So between the two of us, we figured out a way to make a a ready-to-wear version of what we had been selling as a DIY thing for two and a half years. Amazing. And wearing these, and I have not had a chance to try these on, but I saw your segment on Shark Tank, which we'll come to in a couple minutes. Wearing these almost feels like you're actually barefoot, right? Well, in fact, the original name of the company was Invisible Shoes. Oh. And the idea was it feels like you're not wearing anything. But then I met a guy who'd been the VP of marketing for a multi-billion dollar fitness brand. And the first thing he said to me was, I can see them. Mm, wow. <laughs> said, huh. That's a good point. And he goes, besides, you can't really brand invisible. And so uh, that led to a a rebranding and a name change. But yes, the idea is it's not it's that you want to feel be as close to barefoot as possible, but with the protection that you would want and the style that you would want. And if you needed something like insulation for the cold or extra traction. So we've evolved from just having a single um, ready to wear sandal and do it yourself kit to a complete line of casual and performance uh, shoes, boots, and sandals that people use for everything from taking a walk to running ultra marathons. But the key yeah. idea is how do we give you that? You know, remember being a kid and going outside and kicking off your shoes and mm-hmm. feeling the grass between your toes or the water around your feet or, mm-hmm. you know, it's like that feeling uh, of just that freedom and that comfort. We've Our shoes are so lightweight and comfy. We like to say we've had people, and this is true, we've had people email saying, I accidentally went to bed still wearing my zero shoes because I forgot I had them on. Oh, how fun. That's great. Was this difficult to design? Was there a lot of trial and error involved in this? Uh, It was difficult because the way we're making our shoes is very different than the way modern shoes are made, where there's a bunch of layers that frankly all wear out pretty quickly. And uh, you can hide a lot of things when you have a bunch of layers. When you're making something as minimalist as what we do, you can't really hide things. So my favorite story is when we we designed the rubber that we use. We wanted it to be really abrasion resistant. Our rubber has a 5,000 mile sole warranty. Um, unlike most modern running shoes, they say you need to replace them after 150 to 300 miles. <clears throat> and when we when we approached um, the rubber manufacturer with the the sort of performance specs that we wanted, he said, well, but that's not how they make rubber for shoe outsoles. And we said, yeah, that's why we want to do it this way. So there was a lot of retraining of factories about how to do what we're doing because it was so different than everything else they do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wow. So the soles of these shoes are really low to the ground because they resemble being barefoot. So do you get enough support? I'm sure that's a, that was a concern in the design process, right? 
Well, it's a great question. So I have uh, I had the pleasure of having a conversation with former heavyweight champion Lennox Lewis. Mm. And Lennox was, we were chatting about shoes, and he said, well, what do you do about support? I said, well, you grew up in Jamaica. Um, when you were a kid, what did you do all day, every day? He said, I ran around barefoot. I said, did you need support? He says, no, my fe- feet felt great. I said, well, we do the same thing. Mm. So your feet are designed to support you. It's mm-hmm. If you think that that's not true, it's only because you were told that by someone who made money by selling you things like orthotics and insoles. Yeah. But if you want to, uh, your, your feet are frankly miraculous. You have a quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body. You have more nerve endings in the soles than anywhere at your fingertips and your lips. The, you have three arches built into your feet and arches are the most supportive structure ever. Yeah. And it's really just a case of use it or lose it. If you use yeah. them, they can be strong and support you. If yeah. you support them, and there's research that shows if you just put arch support in the shoes of healthy athletes, they lose up to 17% of the muscle mass in their feet in as little as 12 weeks. Wow. So you can support you, and that's what we do. I imagine very easily running on flat surfaces with shoes like these, but what about running on rocky terrains or even climbing hills? Yeah, um, I'm not going to suggest that you do anything stupid. So right. if it's a bed of nails or, you know, bubbling tar, you want right. to wear some footwear. Right. And of course, and that's what our footwear is designed for is to give you the protection for surfaces that you don't want to step on or in, for example. Mm-hmm. So what you learn to do, and it's super fun, actually. Now, let me back up. You can run on rocky things and you can run up to, up and down trails. I live outside of Boulder, Colorado, and I do this with people all the time where we go running barefoot, um, mm-hmm. let alone in zero shoes, up these things. We're up these paths where people think that you need big, thick, padded, tons of cushioning, lots of arch and ankle support. And what you learn to do is pay attention to where and how you place your feet. And wow. you end up using the terrain instead of just trying to go over the terrain. And you become, it's a great feeling. You just feel like you're part of something instead of just going over something. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's just a total blast. Yeah. We've got probably two or three minutes left to our next break. I want to talk about the health benefits of wearing these types of shoes versus mm-hmm. traditional shoes. I mean, we talk about, you know, being grounded and earthing and touching the earth. These shoes seem to resemble doing that. So are there health benefits to wearing shoes like these versus traditional shoes? Research from Dr. Sarah Ridge showed that just wearing uh, and walking in a pair of shoes like Zero Shoes, although she did her study with a different brand, uh, builds intrinsic foot muscle strength as much as doing an actual foot strengthening exercise program. So there's a real benefit there. Research from Dr. Isabel Sacco, she put minimalist shoes on the feet of elderly women who had knee osteoarthritis, and their osteoarthritis went away because they started using their muscles, ligaments, and tendons as the natural springs and shock absorbers and joint protectors they're supposed to be, which ironically, when you're wearing a padded shoe, uh, the research shows that you end up putting a spike of force right through your joints, mostly going straight into your knee and your back because of the way you land. When you have more cushioning, you tend to land with a stiffer leg and all the force goes right up into the joints instead of using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons naturally and properly. Right. I certainly get that. We've got about a minute to our break. You offer a lot of different varieties of shoes. Was inventory management a huge concern in the beginning? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the biggest concern was just warehouse space. Every time we moved into a new a new place, we ended up realizing that the amount of space we had for warehousing was already maxed out. And so, um, yeah, managing inventory for a footwear brand is very, very challenging uh, and has been since day one. 
Absolutely. We are coming up against our next break. I can't believe how fast this is going. My very special guest is Stephen Sashin, and we are talking about how Zero Shoes got started, the benefits of wearing them, and and just how how different an experience it actually is. After the break, we're going to talk about what it was like to go on Shark Tank, what his business was like before Shark Tank, what was what it's like to audition, and... For those who might be seeking investors, how do you know how to evaluate your company? Mm -hmm. We'll come back after the break. This is Success Profiles Radio. The mission is to motivate and inspire others to discover their unique talents and follow their dreams in life. This is Success Profiles Radio. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Surveys show that 81% of people wish they could, but many never do. If you're one of those people, I can tell you why. You don't think you have time, you may not know how, or you might not believe you are a good enough writer. When you're working with an experienced coach, these reasons go away because I will help you every step of the way. If you want to know more about how to write a nonfiction book, whether it's business, self-help, or how-to, reach out to me at www.briankwright.com for more information. Once again, that's briankwright.com. Reaching out from the heartland of the United States with quality programming, this is Tokinet Radio. If you are in business, what is the number one thing that stops revenue growth? Not having enough leads. Data is the new gold rush. With phone sites, that is never an issue. You can generate as many leads as you want without paying a lead broker. With phone sites, you can build a website or sales funnel from your mobile device in five minutes or less without any technical skills or without downloading an app. It's easy and you have nothing to lose. Try it for free for 14 days at phonesites.com forward slash Brian. Once again, that's phonesites.com forward slash Brian. Welcome back to Success Profiles Radio. So many people live their lives wanting more than they currently have. And this show will clearly demonstrate the principles, if I can do it, you can do it. So let's get back to the show. This is Success Profiles Radio. And here again is your host, Brian K. Wright. And we're back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest this week is Stephen Sashin. He is the CEO and founder of zero shoes and my favorite show is shark tank and steven you had an opportunity to be on shark tank in season four so i want to ask you first of all what was your business like before you went on shark tank and what led you to audition well what led us to audition was um when people heard we had started this company they kept saying you guys need to be on shark tank and Mm -hmm. lena's and my response was what's shark tank and so then we watched and like everyone we just imagined being on the show both being one of the people uh, trying to pitch and also what everyone also does is try to imagine being the shark. And then we watched on YouTube, we watched the episodes of Dragon's Den from the UK, Dragon's Den from Canada, both of which preceded uh, the US version of Shark Tank. Um, and both of those were preceded by a Japanese version. But since that wasn't subtitled, we didn't watch those. Mm-hmm. So we thought, um, yeah, that would be a great show for us to be on. And we applied not knowing how the application process worked. There's a casting season, and we didn't know that mm. at first. But then we found that out, and when the casting season started, we immediately sent a uh, – actually, I immediately sent a an email for the audition. We also made a video. We sent that in, and then we got a phone call from one of the producers just kind of vetting us. And at the end of that hour-long call, 
they said, yeah, we'd like you to submit an actual audition video. And this is on a Thursday. And they said, can you have it here by Monday? And I said, sure, no problem. And I didn't notice that all the blood drained out of my wife's face because she was planning a surprise 50th birthday party for me on Saturday. Oh, <laughs> and so party went without a hitch. I was totally surprised because it was three weeks before my birthday. Actually, that was the only way she knew she'd be able to fool me. Oh. And, uh, and then we, we shot the video on Sunday. Um, I sent it in on Monday. Um, they gave us, there's a onerous contract. We had, we had to hire someone on Craigslist to fill out the application for us because it had to be handwritten and you can't read either of our writing. So uh. we typed out our answers, hired someone to write them. Um, sent that in and they called us and um, sent us another, co- sent us a contract again, totally one-sided and onerous and crazy. And then we submitted that and they said, um, we're not saying that, you know, you're on the show. We just want to get the contract just in case. And the moment they received the contract, they called and said, yeah, we want you on the show in a couple of weeks. That, oh my gosh, in a couple of weeks, that was quick. Uh, well, I think they might've said six weeks and it turned into, uh, like a call uh, three weeks later saying we need you out here in three days. So I don't know if that was just bad production work or just, they want to keep you on your toes, but either way, from the moment they said, you know, we want you on, all we did was practice our pitch and get really clear about what we wanted to do on the show. Absolutely. What was your business like before you went and did this? What were your sales? What were your numbers? What were you doing? Um, it's a while ago. So I got to remember, I think the year prior to being on the show, we had done about $500,000 in sales okay. and we were still, again, at that point, still just a DIY sandal making kit, mm-hmm. uh, that we were running mostly out of our house. I don't think we'd even, yeah, we hadn't moved into an office yet. So yeah. the business had taken over the house. Shipping yeah. was in our living room. Customer service was at our dining table. Lena had an office in a bedroom. I had an office in the basement and then everywhere else was product. Yeah. So the fact that it was still a DIY operation at that point, were they impressed by that or were they a little turned off by that part of it? A little turned off by that. It seemed like, and it, and it was a funky little thing to, you know, make your own sandals, make your own footwear. So yeah, they didn't quite get that. Um, Mm -hmm. to, to, to say that we were premature, I think is accurate, but I also don't think that had we been any further along in the business, we would have been invited on the show. Oh, so, and, and even, and, you know, frankly, it was great being on regardless of where we were. Mm -hmm. If we were on today, it would be worth, oh gosh, a hundred times what it was worth to us then, but it was still really good for us. Yeah. Was it intimidating? I don't experience it that way. I was so excited to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, the, it, it was weird. It wasn't intimidating. There was a weird part where you go through the hallway, you end up in the tank, and you're standing unnaturally far away from these people that you've watched on television. Mm-hmm. So there's this unnatural feeling of familiarity that mm-hmm. you very quickly have to remind yourself mm-hmm. they don't know you. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, because if you if you treat them like friends, which is the natural inclination since you've been watching them on TV, then you're most likely going to say something really stupid that you would never say to a potential investor that you would say to a friend. Right. So right. but the unnatural distance was weird. The cameras are all hiding. So you don't see those. So that's a yeah. good sign. Yeah. Uh, but no, I was I just couldn't have been more excited. So when you walked down the hallway, did you hear the music or did they add that? Yeah, in no, you heard the music. Wow. How cool is that? I bet that was surreal. It was, it was, oh, it was, I was kind of like racing down there and I'm kind of dragging Lena behind me because she can't walk as fast. And here's the, here's the uh, little Shark Tank secret. When you walk out, they say, hit your mark and just stand there. And they tell you it's because they want to check the levels of the lighting and the whatever else. But what they're really doing is they're hoping that you get really anxious. So they have some footage they can cut in later of, you know, you picking your nose or, or fidgeting in some way. (laughs) And, um, and I knew this was going to happen because someone had told me. So we walked out and just like very slowly looked at all the sharks and just 
just took it in like, hey, here we are. Mm -hmm. And we just enjoyed it so much that after like five seconds, they went, all right, let's just get started. So you made the decision to own the room, basically. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's awesome. So did you have an idea of who you wanted to work with? Because you did. you did some research on all these sharks before you went on, didn't you? Did. Yeah, we read all their autobiographies. And wow. so at that time, Barbara was the only one who was actively working with the companies she invested in. She was retired at that point. And so and she was also a brilliant marketer. So we really were hoping that we were going to be doing something with her. But we also thought there was opportunities with most of the other sharks. Uh, Kevin, um, was actually not on our to-do list at all, but Mark Cuban was because we knew he had done some pitching for Skechers who had recently made a natural movement shoe. Wasn't as good as ours, but they were in that idea. Mm -hmm. Damon, we knew his experience with fashion and footwear. Mm -hmm. Robert, we knew he was a runner. So we thought, you know, four out of the five were possibilities and it went the other way around. It was Kevin at the end who made us an offer. And in fact, um, it was such a non-starter that we even forgot he made the offer and Mm -hmm. Robert had to remind us. And, um, and then Lena and I have a debate about this. I remember her saying something that she doesn't remember saying, and we don't know which one is true, but when Robert said, you know, there's an offer on the table and we were like, Oh, right, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. And Lena says, so are you bringing anything to this other than money? And he says, well, I'm a smart businessman. I got a big Rolodex. And I remember her saying, so nothing. Oh gosh. (laughs) because <laughs> for us we knew we needed someone who was hip to what we were doing not mm-hmm. just someone who had money in a rolodex wow i love that so did you turn the deal down right yeah he we we walked in offering eight percent for four hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars and he said i'll give you the 400 grand for 50 percent and we said, oh, no. And he goes, well, you can make a counter offer. I said, I'll, I'll go up to 10%. And he goes, oh, you're crazy. I said, maybe. I don't think so, but you could be right. Mm-hmm. Great. So let me ask you this. How do you properly value your company? How do you know what to ask for? What did you? How did you arrive at that particular ask? Well, keep in mind, um, I like to say valuation is in the eye of the beholder of the checkbook. Right. And with these particular checkbooks, they have specific things they're looking for. They're typically looking for people who are desperate or not necessarily savvy about what valuation should be or some combination thereof. They're basically looking to make money on the buy, not on the sell. They want to make sure that they can make money the day after they buy something, if they buy something. Mm -hmm. So what we did, we talked to investment bankers who knew the footwear industry. We talked to people who bought shoe companies, who sold shoe companies. We talked to um, private equity people. We talked to venture capitalists. And depending on their goals, they had a range. So the people who bought brands and didn't care about growth, they were valuing us at about two and a half million dollars. Mm-hmm. The people who valued growth were valuing us, valuing us, that's a weird thing to say too, mm-hmm. at 10 million. And going on the show is not like a normal valuation and a normal negotiation. Mm-hmm. Where on the show, you have to give both the ask and the offer the percentage and the dollar amount. And you know they want to talk you down and you know that if you offer too little, they get mad. So there's a balancing act. And we just wanted to go in with a number that A, we could hold our head up and say with confidence that it made sense and B, gave us room to negotiate. And the amount of room that we we had built in is just not how far it went. We were willing to go, oh, to about a 2.5 to $3 million valuation, um, Mm -hmm. but not to an $800,000 valuation, which which was less than we were going to make the next year. Yeah, I certainly understand that. Did did it disappoint you not to get a deal? 
Uh, it more surprised us than anything else. We we really thought that we had something interesting that was going to resonate with people. So I think um, I think the surprise was, in fact, literally as we're walking out of the tank, I turned to Lena and I said, wow, that is not what I expected to happen. But in part, that was because of a few weird little things like Barbara, the open, her opening line to me was, you know, I hated you from the moment you walked out here. You remind me of my ex-husband. You smoke a cigar and she just went and attacked me. And I just couldn't stop laughing because what are you going to say to that? And then she went after Lena. Like, how can you be married to this guy? And Lena was dumbstruck. She says, you know, I knew my numbers. I was prepared to, to justify my cost of goods, my margin, our marketing costs, but not my marriage. Um, mm-hmm. So – you know, that was crazy making. And Kevin at one point said, didn't I buy your previous company? It's like, no, I would have known if you did. Cuban at one point asked us about the previous company. And then he realized he was a customer of mine in my oh. previous company, which kind of took him aback. Um, so it was the whole thing was if they wanted to, they could have cut it to make it look completely insane. But one thing our producer said is um, this is a Disney owned network. We want people to want to be on the show. We mm-hmm. want to make people look good. If you see someone really eat it, it was probably way worse in the tank and we made them look as good as we can. And mm. that was kind of reassuring as well, but it was still yeah. the, the, the biggest um, emotional experience after getting out of the tank is just wondering a, if you're going to air cause they take mm. more segments than they air oh. and B of course, how are they going to edit it? Cause you just don't know. Yeah. And so put that together and you know, that'll leave you having a hard time breathing uh, well for yeah. months at a time. Right. And of course, you don't get right of refusal over the edits first. No, you do not. (laughs) No, you don't. Uh, (laughs) Let me ask. So how has this been since Shark Tank? I'm sure you exploded. Uh, Well, it depends on how you define exploded. But we've grown, you know, like over 50 percent year over year. Uh, I think some for some stretches of time, 80 percent year over year. So what I can tell you is. Again, the year before the show, we were at about 500,000, and this is public information uh, on the, the SEC website to say that in 2020, we did a little over 23 million. That is absolutely fantastic. So have you attracted investors since Shark Tank? I mean, now that you've grown so much, maybe you've attracted that kind of attention since then? We did. We uh, we had a lot of conversations in 2020 and eventually brought on a private equity partner at the end of the year, someone who unlike many private equity partners, they've really helped us continue to grow the business rather than just try to extract money from the businesses that they invest in. And we've actually had the pleasure of turning down a lot of money, uh, which is very fun to do when we lo- we learned the questions to ask early on yeah. uh, that would allow us to vet someone and very quickly say to them, yeah, we, we don't want your money, which yeah. they get very confused by because people don't usually do that to private equity no. or capital money. No, because people who are seeking money or are offered money don't think of themselves as interviewing the investor. <laughs> yeah. It's usually yeah. the other way around. So we've yeah. got about a minute or so. Just real quickly, when you are offered money, how do you know whether or not to accept it? Uh, well, it depends on your business, of course. But we ask I – mean, here, I'll say it now. People are calling us now, and I just say to them right off the bat, if you're going to come up with a valuation based on any historical math, we don't have a conversation. Mm. Fair enough. Okay, we are coming up against our final break. I can't believe how quickly this is going. We are talking to Stephen Sashen. He is the CEO and founder of Zero Shoes. We've been talking about his appearance on Shark Tank, and we have a lot more to unravel before we finish. So we'll come right back after the break. This is Success Profiles Radio. Please stay with us. Don't go away. And the next thing I will ask him is, what is your best advice to someone who's starting a product-based business? I'm Hmm. sure you won't want to miss that. We'll come right back.
The mission is to motivate and inspire others to discover their unique talents and follow their dreams in life. This is Success Profiles Radio. you are in business, what is the number one thing that stops revenue growth? Not having enough leads. Data is the new gold rush. With phone sites, that is never an issue. You can generate as many leads as you want without paying a lead broker. With phone sites, you can build a website or sales funnel from your mobile device in five minutes or less without any technical skills or without downloading an app. It's easy and you have nothing to lose. Try it for free for 14 days at phonesites.com forward slash Brian. Once again, that's phonesites.com forward slash Brian. This is the Tokenet Radio Network, radio with a cutting edge. PetSmart has a policy that allows you to bring your pets into their stores. However, employees and customers at a PetSmart in Muskegon, Michigan, were gobsmacked when someone brought in their 1,400-pound camel. The camel, named Jeffrey, was on a bit of a field trip from the Lewis Farms and Petting Zoo with his owner, Mr. Lewis. Mr. Lewis explained he was just trying to get Jeffrey used to riding in his trailer. Camels are very social animals, and Jeffrey was no exception. And soon the customers and workers at PetSmart were all gathered around to greet him. A camel with one hump is called a dromedary, and a two-humped camel is called a bactrian. The word camel in Arabic literally means beauty. Really? Have you ever seen a camel up close? It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Success Profiles Radio. So many people live their lives wanting more than they currently have. And this show will clearly demonstrate the principles, if I can do it, you can do it. So let's get back to the show. This is Success Profiles Radio. And here again is your host, Brian K. Wright. And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guest this week is Stephen Sashin. He is the CEO and founder of Zero Shoes. And if you've not subscribed to Success Profiles Magazine, you can go to successprofilesmagazine.com. Uh, issue number 46 just came out very recently, and I cannot wait for you to take advantage of that. So just go to successprofilesmagazine.com, scroll down to the bottom, pick your subscription option, and you can read any issue going all the way back to issue number one, which featured Kevin Harrington on the cover December 2017. And before we go to the topic that I teased right before the break, I do want to ask one more question about our current topic, Stephen. How do you know when it's time to raise capital versus trying to bootstrap your business? Um, when you don't have a choice. I mean, you know, we bootstrapped all our, our way all the way till December of um, last year. And it was because be, the combination of the trade war and COVID, uh, the money situation was changing underneath our feet. So we had had a lot of debt financing. We'd gotten money from J.P. Morgan Chase and it was just getting much more difficult. And we were growing so quickly. We needed money for inventory. Wow. And so we went for the equity route because it was really the best option that we had at that time, given our, both our business and the macro environment. Wow, that's fantastic. So what is your best advice to someone who is starting a product-based business? Other than get a government job with a pension? Yes. Oh, damn it. I think that's really my advice because um, <laughs> it's tough. But the, the real advice is um, as quickly and as inexpensively as you possibly can, find out if strangers are willing to give you money for what you're providing. Mm. If you think about what people did in the old direct marketing days, 
they would write ad, full page ads that they would put in magazines with a little coupon you would have to clip out and send in a check. And they would just test to see if there was enough demand for what they were doing. If the numbers made sense based on the demand, they'd write the ad first before they had a business, frankly. Mm -hmm. And you can do the same kind of thing now. You can find Facebook groups or uh, blogs where people are interacting. Get yourself involved in the conversation. See what people are asking about or complaining about. Um, offer them something of value so that they already start to see you as an important person who's willing to help, not trying to mm -hmm. just extract money from them or something else yeah. and, uh, and see if they can, you know, if you can, again, get strangers to actually pull their hard earned cash out yeah. of their tightly packed wallets rather than just your friends and family telling you that the idea that you think is brilliant is, uh, as brilliant as you think. Wow. That's great. So how big is your team right now? 57. That's awesome. So how important is culture to your organization? It's, again, a funny question. Uh, apparently, it's really important. <laughs> and I say apparently because I don't think as, of culture as something that you can deliberately do. My line mm -hmm. is that all businesses rise to the level of the neuroses of their founders. Mm. And so one of my little neurotic things, I treat everyone like they're friends of mine. It's just hard for me to code shift. Um, I and, and one of the things that I love about our team is we all – treat each other that way. We all treat each other as friends. We tease each other <laughs> mercilessly all the time. We have a good time. Um, we don't you know, spend 24 seven together. We also believe in having a life. So we do that. Lena is more of the den mother for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so it really has a familial feeling to it. The first time one of our employees referred to his career, we were both sort of stunned because we weren't thinking about building something. We just built something, built a place that we wanted to be and we, where we thought that other people would want to be. And the, the other thing that was very satisfying is um, we would hear, especially from like our warehouse team and our customer happiness team, people would be telling their friends, you've got to apply for a job here. Mm. And that was really satisfying. But again, not something that we deliberately, actually there was, a, a, I take it back, there's a deliberate part as well. We believe that everybody in this company is equally important. Yeah. If, if any one of those 57 people disappeared, it's a problem. And if certain groups of them disappeared, it's a big problem. If the mm -hmm. warehouse can't deliver product, if customer service isn't there to be helpful, uh, if product development team isn't doing what they're doing. And so we built in incentive programs to acknowledge and prove that this is what we believe by taking a percentage of the profit we have every quarter, if we have a profit that quarter, mm -hmm. and splitting it evenly among the people that are, that are here full-time and then prorated for people who are part-time. And, uh, I mean, same amount that goes to our lead product developer and someone who works in the warehouse mm -hmm. and everybody, I can't even say in between everybody around the circle. Yeah. And that's been really satisfying because a lot of the people are in positions where they've never gotten a bonus, let alone one yeah. every quarter that really shows them what their role and responsibility is for helping this entire organization grow. I love that. So what are your top core values that you run your business by? Um, that's a great question that I've never thought of. So I'm going to make it up as we go. Transparency, great. transparency yeah. and the truth are kind of very s close cousins. Uh, those are the two biggies. And, um, I, I can't even think of a third after that. Okay, fair enough. So gratitude is a huge topic on this show. Mm. How important has that been for you? <laughs> Funny you should say that. Um, I, this is going to sound slightly off topic, but one of the things that I noticed is that I was getting upset multiple times a day for the last um, seven years because the road between our office and our house, the speed limit is X and most drivers are doing X minus something. 
and I'm stuck behind them. And mm -hmm. I decided that I was tired of getting mad at them. So I decided to change my reaction or not change it, but use that as a cue. And every time someone is driving below the speed limit in front of me, I use that as a reminder to think of things that I am grateful for. Mm -hmm. And not surprisingly, um, the top of the list is almost always something related to first my wife and uh, secondly, what we've been able to, the number of people we've been able to help. As my wife likes to say, uh, there's enough shoe companies in the world. There's no reason to have another unless what you're doing changes people's lives. And happily, we hear from people all day, every day who tell us that by letting them use their feet naturally, which they hadn't done ever or in years, um, it's changed their life. And that mm -hmm. is, we're unbearably grateful for uh, both the people that we have working with us and the people we've been able to help. Yeah. Sometimes I get a little road rage when I'm walking around in Walmart. People in front of me are taking oh, the middle of the aisle and I can't, go, I can't go around them. And so I, I finally just turn around and walk down the next aisle instead. I, I decided if I became infinitely wealthy, I wouldn't hire someone to go to Costco for me. I would hire someone to go to Costco with me and just yell, get out of the way. <laughs> that's that's absolutely awesome. I love that. <laughs> so, Stephen, let me ask you, what is your superpower? Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, wow. Um, my superpower is getting underneath what most people think of as true to find what's more essential beyond that. Mm. Okay. That's great. How, how do you know what to say yes or no to? I love asking this question. <laughs> um, well, you're talking to a guy who's a cognitive psych researcher way back when, and there's a great book called On Being Certain. Mm. Uh, the subtitle is something like knowing that you're feeling that you're right even when you're not. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't have a good answer for that. I kind of work on the idea that I'm going to land on yes or no through some unconscious process over which I have no control. And then once that happens, figure out if that was the right decision. I think of there's um, George Soros. Someone asked him how he became so wealthy. Yeah. And he said, the moment I take a trade, I start looking for all the reasons that I was wrong. Hmm. And other than which is what most people do instead is try to figure out the reasons they want to hold on because they were right, despite mm -hmm you know, the tides changing underneath them. So I kind of work on the take a step, reevaluate, take a step, reevaluate plan. Wow. That's great. When did you realize you needed a team? Uh, the day I started the company. I love that. That's absolutely great because some people never, ever come to that conclusion. Well, more, I realized that I needed to replace myself as quickly as I could. And unfortunately I'm a really um, experienced internet marketer. So that's been very challenging. But I, I knew the first thing we were going to have to do is find someone to do customer service because whenever anyone has a problem, like you can insult me personally or try to, but it, it's pretty ineffectual because I don't take that personally. Um, you're either telling me something factually inaccurate or something that I also believe but was hoping you wouldn't notice. And why would I argue if we both agree? Yeah. So, um, but I, But when it comes to my company, if I'm putting out a product and someone has a complaint or a problem, I do take that very personally and my natural inclination is to try to alleviate my anxiety as quickly as possible and get them off the phone and solve their problem as quickly as possible, yeah. which is not the best way to handle customers. Yeah. Uh, and so I knew I would need to have someone doing that for me because I would just want to, you know, get to it and make things better fast, which is not satisfying for people. So, uh, the moment we started something, it was very clear we needed to bring in and have a team. Fantastic. What has surprised you the most about entrepreneurship? Um, that's another interesting question. I've never had a job. I've never applied for a job. I've only, since as early as I can remember, only luckily thought of things that were interesting to me and found a way to make a living doing them. So um, I can't think of anything that explicitly surprised me. 
since I just kind of grew up as this. But the thing that was the funniest was when we had this multi-million dollar loan from JP Morgan Chase. And the first line was saying that I personally promised to repay this loan and mm -hmm. we had no assets at all. So I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. So mm -hmm. the fact that people, um, I guess the thing that surprises, ah, here, here we go. What surprises me is that, that there's all these people in all aspects of the entrepreneurial and venture world and, and, and financial world who are just trying to do something impossible, which is predict the future. Mm -hmm. And then they do things to try to pretend that they're not just trying to do the impossible thing of trying to predict the future. And I find that somewhat shocking mm -hmm. uh, that this entire infrastructure has been built around this completely impossible task. And ironically, by the things that people do, the money people in particular, the things they do to try to protect themselves while trying to predict the future, make it harder to create the future that they would ultimately like. Yeah. That's fantastic. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who might be struggling right now? Government job with a pension. I, and I know it sounds silly when I say that, but I'm, I'm only half kidding because if my saying get a government job with a pension, and I have a lot of friends who are do, who have retired with their pensions now, um, if that gives you any pause, you should totally get a government job with a pension. And if you're a real entrepreneur, there's pretty much nothing I could say that would talk you out of your statistically stupid idea um, mm -hmm. anyway. And I say that as someone who had lots of stupid ideas. So, um, you know, cross your fingers, have fun, knock yourself out. Fantastic. Less than two minutes to the end. If you could give advice to your 18 year old self, what would you tell him? Government job with a pension. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> who, who inspires and motivates you? This is the question I ask everybody at the end. What was the question? Who inspires and motivates you? I don't. I don't look externally for motivation because I don't know those other people. So you know, people, someone invited me. They said, "Do you want to come meet Richard Branson on his island?" I said, "Why?" They said, "Imagine what you could learn from him." I said, "There's no other Richard Branson, and if anyone could have learned something by now, it would have been the people hanging out with him." So, um, no, I'll just try to figure it out on my end. Um, I don't pay attention to what other people have done. Awesome. So, Stephen, how can we find you? How can we try with you and vibe with you? Ooh, um, zeroshoes.com, X-E-R-O shoes. Or if you accidentally type Z-E-R-O, it'll still get to me. And then on social media, I'm at zero shoes or slash, slash zero shoes, wherever you happen to at or slash. Fantastic. Any final thoughts as we close out? Oh, gosh, go out, have fun, live life feet first. Feet first. I see what you did there. That's awesome. Thank you, Stephen, for being here. This was a lot of fun. I had a great time. Brian. Me too. Fantastic. And thanks to all of you for listening. This has been Success Profiles Radio. Please join us every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, where I interview another world-class achiever, learn what they did, what they overcame, and the lessons that we can learn from their journeys. Until next week, everyone, take care. Goodbye. Have a great week. Thank you for being a part of Success Profiles Radio with your host, Brian K. Wright. Each week, we'll explore different aspects of success and how to apply them to your life. We'll have guests that will come from many different backgrounds, including expertise in leadership, business, relationships, careers, networking, health, overcoming adversity, and much more. For more on Brian and the show, check out his website, briankwright.com. If you've ever wondered if there's more to life than you're currently living, then Success Profiles Radio is the program for you. Join us again next week for more Success Profiles Radio with your host, Brian K. Wright.